0: Resurrection, I'm really excited to be bringing you with us to the top of Mount Sinai. It was at Mount Sinai that Moses receives the Ten Commandments. And so as you're contemplating the Seventh Commandment back in Kansas City, we're going to be contemplating it on top of Mount Sinai. It's two in the morning, and this is the time you leave to be able to get there to watch the sunrise at 530. And we're taking you with us. So in two minutes, we're going to have a chance to take you up the mountain. It takes us three hours to get there. And we're going to watch the sunrise together over the mountains, a sunrise that Moses would have seen many, many times from the top of Mount Sinai. So let's go. Alright, well we've made it about three-quarters of the way up and uh, most of us are a little winded by the time we get to this point. We stop for uh, something to drink at a little cafe that's set up here, a little just Bedouin tent. And uh, we've got about 20 more minutes, I think before we hit the stairway with 700 stairs until we get to the top. So, let's keep climbing. So now we're most of the way up. We've come to the 750 steps that separates the men from the boys right here, or the women from the girls. We're gonna walk up these 750 steps to the final mountaintop. We're gonna watch the sun rise. So uh, yeah, we're a little tired. I don't know that I would uh, do this every week, but I'm ready, let's go, 750 steps. So uh, we're finally made it to the top, and I gotta tell you, it was a lot harder than we thought it was gonna be. And I wouldn't recommend anybody with bad knees or hips coming up here, but I gotta tell you, it's spectacular. Uh, Walking up and the stars and the sky were just magnificent. And uh, the, the chance when you could get a little quiet time by yourself to pray and to think, and then finally coming up to the top. And as you can see, the sunrise rising over these mountains is just spectacular. And you imagine Moses 40 days and 40 nights up here and waking up in the morning and seeing the sunrise like this every day. And you can't come up here and not feel inspired by what you see and so uh, now we're going to watch the sunrise and then I'm going to invite you uh, to just be listening very carefully for God to speak through your pastor your campus pastors as they're preaching today on this really important commandment and I look forward to being with you next week uh, to preach the sermon from here at Mount Sinai
1: Uh, switch gears and focusing on the seventh commandment I need you to know that my wife Wendy is pastor here on staff she said Scott if your sermon is anything longer than 90 uh, seconds you're going to be in trouble um I told her it's gonna to have to be longer because this is a pervasive topic. Uh, this is something that has affected and has touched uh, more lives than we would ever feel comfortable acknowledging or, or admitting to, and yet its severity and its pervasiveness, uh, adultery, infidelity is something that we need to confront and address. And. And if ever there was a time that we recognize this, it's when that, that topic, this topic, adultery or infidelity, rose to the top of the news cycles. And it wasn't too many years ago. It was 2015. And that's when we first heard her name. Uh, her name was Ashley Madison. And, and it wasn't a, a name of a woman. It was the name of a website that nobody had ever heard of before. Uh, it was a website that actively helped people engage in cheating behavior against their spouses. And, and uh, the only reason we ever heard of Ashley Madison that was brought to the light is because hackers hacked into their database and released the names and personal information of everybody that had logged in uh, to that website, everybody who had actively sought uh, to cheat on or be unfaithful to their partner. 37 million names were released because of that hack, which helped to uh, allow us to recognize that this is a problem uh, that, that is pervasive w- within our society, within our lives together. And it's something that we, we have to confront. It was just a couple of years after that, in 2017, when Time magazine named its person of the year uh, as that group of women, uh, mostly, but some men as well, called the silence breakers. And, and these silence breakers were people that came forward who refused to be silent any longer about the, the sexual trespass, the abuse, the, the assault, and sometimes criminal uh, offenses that were uh, perpetrated against them. And they were done keeping that in the dark. They needed to shed light on that, and that set off a cascade of, of storylines in the media of, of powerful men mostly that have, that have been reduced to nothing because finally what they had been doing in the darkness uh, for way too long had been brought into the light. And so we recognize that this is something that, that we, we must deal with because it's been happening for far too long, and it happens within far too many uh, people uh, I've read statistics about adultery, and one of the things that I've come across is that approximately 15% of married women and, and 25% of married men have had or will have extramarital affairs in their, their marriages. The Institute for, for Family Studies breaks this down specifically, and they do so by gender and by age, and what they, they help to illumine is that this isn't a, a gender problem, and this isn't a problem that is specific to one age group. This covers everybody always. And so we have a, a statistic that came out of that study, and it shows that, that men and women both enter into this unfaithful uh, position from time to time and and it seems to hit a crescendo the older we get between 60 and and 80 is when it happens most frequently. Ultimately, when you boil this down, one out of every five couples is going to have to deal with or have their marriage end because of an act of adultery or infidelity that number doubles when you take into account things like emotional affairs where there's no physical touch, or, or you take into account pornography addiction or, or virtual affairs or, or just the, the, the casual ogling of coworkers or friends. When you factor that in, which is also infidelity or, or adultery based on, on our interpretation of it, then, then what you see is two or more than two out of every five couples will be impacted, if not have their relationships ruined, because of this. Uh, Pastor Adam, he shared with me an email from, from, uh, from Egypt, of all places, this past week, and he wanted to make sure that I lifted out uh, one statistic in particular having to do with one of the major online pornographic websites uh, of today's day and age. And they reported in 2018 they had over 33.5 billion visits uh, this past year. I want you to soak that in for a second. That's 33.5 billion visits I tried to figure out a way to like share that number. And what that ultimately equates to is that that's every single person on this planet of all ages uh, visiting that site, not once, but four times uh, last year. And that's just one uh, website. Uh, These non-physical affairs, pornography addiction, the the picture of virtual relationships, virtual affairs, emotional connectedness, that is also uh, unfaithful. And and so what that means is that this is something that is widespread. 42% of of marriages will experience this or or have some sort of encounter with this. And and yet, as I was going through all of the statistics, uh, this commandment, the seventh commandment, the one that we read in Exodus 20, do not commit adultery, it actually doesn't apply uh, to any of those statistics. When you, when you hear that commandment, do not commit adultery, and when you take it in its biblical time, what you recognize is that it's actually a very narrow commandment. But I want us to say it together because it's one of the Ten Commandments. So let's say it aloud. Uh, do not commit adultery. Uh, what this applied to and referred to in biblical times was something that was uh, different than the way that we consider infidelity or adultery today. Uh, this is what adultery was defined as it was the voluntary sexual intercourse between a married woman or one engaged by payment of the bride price. In a man other than her husband. In Hebrew, this word, adultery, it it literally meant whoredom or it meant fornication, and it pointed to one specific physical act itself, largely based on the married female's uh, point of view, meaning a married woman was almost always the perpetrator of a crime. Uh, you see, she wasn't an equal. She was considered to be property. She was paid for with a bride price. And, and so therefore, when she was married to a husband, she became her husband's property. And so when she went away and, and, and had a relationship with, with, with somebody else who wasn't her husband, it was as though he was stealing her, the most cherished and prized possession of her husband. The victim of adultery was the husband, uh, not the bride, not the wife. And almost always, the consequences were severe. The punishment was penalty for death because this was the heart-filled covenant of, of marriage that was, that was the seedbed of, of our faith from the very beginning. And so what would happen if somebody was accused or, or convicted of adultery is that both uh, the bride, the, the, the married woman, and the man, whoever the man was, should have been publicly executed, sentenced to death. What we see throughout Scripture, specifically in the Old Testament, is adultery, infidelity. It led to the demise of individuals, of unsuspecting men and and women, and and it led to the devastation of even kingdoms. One of the most prolific examples of adultery in Scripture, the Old Testament, is with the greatest king, uh, King David. And David had this horrific uh, adulterous affair with Uriah's wife Bathsheba, and and then he sought to cover it up, keep it in the darkness uh, by murdering Uriah himself. And what that led to was uh, torment, emotional toil, and, and, and temporal struggle for David for, for the rest of his life. But it also led to the devastation of Israel over the course of generations, so much so that you see in later writings of Scripture, uh, entire chapters of the book of Proverbs, uh, guiding people away from the temptation to, to have an adulterous affair. Uh, you see chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Proverbs focus specifically solely on this, but you also get to get to see this listed in the second chapter. This is what we read uh, there, Guiding people away from the the temptation and the toil and the snare of the adulteress. This is what we read in Proverbs the second chapter. Wisdom will rescue you from the mysterious woman, from the foreign woman with her slick words. She leaves behind the partner of her youth, she even forgets her covenant with God, her house, it sinks down to the death, and her paths go down to the shadowy dead. All those who go to her will never return. They will never again reach the ways of the living. Uh, The result of infidelity, it was grave, it was severe. The punishment in most cases for the man and for the married woman was was sure and certain public death. But over the course of its treatment and how people sought to administer justice, what you recognize over the course of time is that the only people that ever had to pay uh, for such a breach of covenant were the women. This unjust and unfair treatment as we sought to administer uh, judgment for this command it became problematic, and it was problematic for Jesus. Uh, Jesus has this uh, extraordinary encounter with adultery in the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John, and, and Jesus is present in the, in the uh, synagogue uh, teaching, and, and as he's there, the Pharisees, they, they come barging in, mostly men, religious leaders of that day and age, and they, they've caught this woman in the act of adultery, in an active affair, and, and as they caught this woman, they, they brought her before Jesus and all the crowd, and, and, and they asked Jesus this question, what would you have us do with her? To which end, Jesus, he bends down and he, and he literally uh, looks at them, ponders their question, and draws a line uh, in the sand. They continue pressing him, and as they continue to press him, uh, this is how the story continues. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And, and once again, uh, he bent down and he wrote on the ground, and, and when they heard it, uh, they went away one by one. Beginning with the elders, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him, Jesus straightened up to her, and, and he said, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on do not sin again. Some scholars suggest that that. That if the woman was caught in adultery, there, there should have been by, by law a, a, another partner there with her. her. Her partner should have been standing there. The, these Pharisees, they should have known the law and they should have executed justice by bringing not only this woman they caught in the fair, but the man that was, that was a part of the party with her. And, and yet they bring her by herself, this adulteress, standing before God and all of these people by herself to be judged, sentenced to death. Jesus, he he looks at these Pharisees, and he recognizes their inability to bring forward uh, both parties, and therefore implicates them in guilt, saying, you're not fit to execute justice because you have refused to acknowledge the whole sin in its entirety. In other words, he's saying, where's the man? If you've witnessed this adulterous affair, where is the other party? Jesus is not condoning adultery, but he's pointing out our hypocrisy, our, our quickness to judge others, to, to execute others without paying attention to our own sinful nature. And so as he's questioning and confronting these Pharisees, religious leaders, and he invites them to, to ponder their own sin, one by one they, they drop their stones. They recognize their, their guilt. Scholars are left to wonder, you know, why these Pharisees didn't bring the man forward, why they only brought her to be present and and to be judged. And there we don't really have a good theory. Uh, There's no information uh, about their motive. And so you have to wonder, you know, what was it about these guys that they were trying to protect this man? Perhaps they knew him. Perhaps that same kind of protection had been extended to them to keep their affairs in the dark. Perhaps this was some sort of good old boy network that needed to be broken up. Regardless of what could have happened or what might have been their motive, what Jesus is making explicitly clear is that he longs for us to evaluate our own sin before throwing stones and judging others unfairly. The story is about adultery and not condoning adultery, although Jesus, he extends forgiveness to everybody, but he acknowledged adultery in this affair as, as sinful, in need of repentance, but then he sends us off with his mercy, with his grace, but invites us to evaluate how it is that we approach this and to approach each other as we, as we try to navigate God's commands, God's laws that should lead us toward the life that we look for. One of the things I've recognized about marriage is that that our tendency is to to judge others and to apply to others these these expectations that we have, to to offer blanket statements and and blanket suggestions for how it is that we can find reconciliation and redemption in the midst of our brokenness or inability to live into the law. But but I got to tell you that I think what Jesus longs for us to do is is to pay attention to our own hearts, to pay attention to our own stories, to pay attention to our own relationships, our own marriages, because it's in those unique spaces that God has gifted us with the ability to love others and to employ our faithfulness you know, all week long, I've gotten more emails in advance of this sermon uh, from people within this congregation urging me, based on their own experience, to preach a different kind of message. I, I've heard from people that have uh, been on the on the breach of, of covenant and uh, where people that have taken that step, they've, they've entered into extramarital affairs, and, and they've talked to me about those affairs and how it's changed their life. I've, I've heard from people that have suffered the devastating effects of their partners engaging in extramarital affairs, and I've heard from devastation points of views. I've heard redemptive stories from those partners as well. I've I've heard from people that are riddled with guilt because of the things they've done. I've heard from people that are so thankful for this trespass because of what it's done in their marriage to make them stronger. I've heard all sorts of stories from people on all sides that are nervous about about what we're going to say in response to this command. And what I've recognized is that there isn't an easy way to tackle this in a way that encompasses everybody because we all have unique stories, unique relationships. Unique callings to live out in life and in love with each other. And we cannot, even though we are tempted to, throw stones at at other marriages from the outside in. But instead, Jesus calls us to evaluate our own relationships, our own stories, our own marriages, our own abilities to live fully into what it means to be faithful in these relationships before Uh, Judging others. And in marriage, it's so quick and so tempting to judge others instead of focusing on ourselves. This is what Jesus urges us to understand. This is why I like to to read the seventh commandment in a different way. Uh, What I shared with you earlier was the common English Bible and that translation, but I like to focus in on the contemporary English version that speaks of this command in a more positive kind of way as opposed to the do not. It gives a a, a positive command going forward and that, that translation reads this way. It says, be faithful in marriage. And what I recognize about being faithful in marriage, it has uh, much more to do with with the way that we live our lives daily than than in just one physical act, focusing on one physical uh, moment. When we consider what it means to be faithful in marriage, the heart of this command, we have to recognize that this requires everything we have and all that we are. It's much broader than what happens in the bedroom with another person. It applies to our whole life, our daily decisions uh, to love one another and so in order to understand what it means to be faithful in marriage, we need to learn what marriage is. And, and what we understand marriage to be in this faith is, is a gift that God has given to us. In the very beginning, when we're created and we're formed and we're shaped, God doesn't take very long to recognize that it's not good that we should be alone. And so what God does is he gifts us with a companion, a co-laborer, a partner, a friend. And, and in the moment we, we come together with that co-laborer, we, we find ourselves becoming an entirely new creation. Uh, man uh, shall leave his his mother mother and father to become one with this, with this co laborer. And as we get to see this, this union come together, we find uh, this gift given to us gives us the ability to become brand new, to become one, a brand new creation. In this way, what we recognize about marriage, it's a gift that God has given to us so that we might become altogether new. We might become uh, just like Christ. In this way, uh, Jesus talks talks about marriage. He says this in Mark, the 10th chapter, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, nobody can separate. What this means is marriage becomes for us like baptism. It becomes one of those moments in our life where we receive this undeserved gift that we've done nothing to deserve. We receive this gift, it changes who we are, and by God's grace, we become brand new because of it. In the same way we enter into the waters of baptism, we die a death like Christ, we receive God's grace, God's mercy, and then we are raised to walk in the newness of life as a whole new creation. This is also what marriage is. Marriage is receiving this gift that God has given to us in the form of a partner, a co-laborer, a companion, and then responding to that gift that we've been given by pledging to live and to love with the love of Jesus Christ, to love like Christ, this co-laborer or companion, until death do us part. And when we do that, what happens is we become entirely new, something brand new. Something that requires all that we have and and all that we are. Something that requires that we commit to loving uh, that person with everything, our whole heart. But this only happens when we choose to do so. When we choose to profess our vows. When we choose to commit to live a life of loving that person, no matter what. The same way that God loves us. This kind of decision, it involves sacrifice and humility. It, it involves uh, laying down our life for another. It, it requires that we give in love without condition so that we might simply make the other person better. And by committing to do so, we become better because of the way that we see our love transforming uh, the one that we commit to. You know, when I think about that definition of marriage and what it means to to be faithful in marriage, it looks like choosing to bless our partners every day, to to think of them, to care for them, to support them. This isn't something that happens in the bedroom. This is something that happens every morning when we wake up to make a decision uh, to love one another like Christ. Something that we do. Or at least that's what my pastor told me when I was preparing to marry uh, my bride of 14 years. Just before I witnessed her walk down the aisle, my pastor whispered to me, and he said, Scott loves a decision. Uh, It's not an emotion. He says, it's something you're gonna have to choose to do every day. You're gonna have to choose to support her, to encourage her, to bless her, to sacrifice for her, to make her better. And if you do that daily, you'll find the life that you're looking for That's hard. It's a a challenge. And I recognize that I'm not the expert in the room. There are some of you here that are married far longer than I have, but what I know about marriage is that it's more encompassing than the narrowness of this command that speaks to one specific act for a married woman and and some other guy besides her husband. What it means to be faithful in marriage requires that we have this unwavering tendency to care for, to bless, to, to love our partner the way that God loves us in a way that never separates that nothing can change. You know, when I think about my marriage and and what makes it work, it's... It, it's Wendy's stick-to-itiveness. Wendy has this audacity to, to love me, to support me, to bless me. I think she wakes up and she, she wakes up asking God to try to find ways to make me better. And, and what is so uh, you know maddening about this and, and what captures my imagination is that, that somehow over the last 14 years, she knows me better than anybody else, which means she knows all of the bad stuff. And I know that's hard to believe that I have bad stuff, but I have some bad stuff. It's like, I think I'm right most of the time and she has to be the one to tell me that I'm not right all of the time. She has to love me sometimes by deflating me or by by bringing me down a notch or by doing whatever she can to point out things that I'm unwilling to see, because that's what love looks like sometimes, even though that leads toward conflict. What I know is that that's one of the ways that she can bless me and love me, and that's hard work for her. It's not fair for her to have to provoke me or deflate me or to correct me because it leads toward unwanted conflict. But that's what love looks like. It it requires making this conscientious decision to to love the other, to bless the other, to serve the other, to lay down your life for another, even if if it's hard for you. Because this is what Jesus does for us. It's otherworldly. I I think about the way that I do that for Wendy, and it's like she's so happy all the time. So I try to provoke her by making... No, I never try to provoke her by making... (laughs) But it's like she makes me better by the way that she strives to support me and provokes me to deeper honor and respect and love. And this is what the Apostle Paul describes for for what it looks like to be faithful in message. You know, he talks about it as, as outdoing one another in, in honor or having the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. In Colossians, he describes our love and our life should be clothed. He says this, you should clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and, and meekness and patience and, and you ought to bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, you ought to forgive each other. And, and just as the Lord has forgiven you, you so, so must you also forgive. But above all, he says, clothe yourselves with love binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in that one body and be thankful you know being thankful in marriage and faithful in marriage it looks like employing and embodying these things it looks like clothing ourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and, and meekness and, and patience it looks like persevering or, or bearing with one another forgiving each other when we are wrong and and above all with gratitude in our hearts it looks like having the courage to choose to love one another just like Christ and what we recognize is that this takes literally everything in the seventh commandment we were given an instruction not to commit adultery which meant if you were a married woman you couldn't sleep with another man but this command it doesn't capture the essence of what it means to be faithful in marriage requires our whole heart and that's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount you know he takes that command that was written on stone tablets and he gives it teeth He, he turns it upside down and he and he tries to connect this surface level command and and he connects it with our our secret thought life he connects it with the inner desires of our heart This is what he says. He says, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see what he did? He didn't focus it on women specifically, married women specifically. Instead, he flipped the table and he began to speak specifically to men saying, look, this isn't about these rituals or these rites or these, these ancient rules. This is about your heart. This is about connecting this, this love that you profess to this love that I'm demonstrating for you and, and having the courage to live that out in your life uh, with another person. This is is reorienting your whole life, your whole heart in a daily kind of way so that you wake up and seek to live out your faith by loving your partner the same way that I first loved you. This is what it looks like to be faithful in marriage. It looks like the cross. It looks like sacrifice. It looks like constantly being selfless for the other person and doing so together in covenant as this new creation made possible by the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. It requires everything we have, which means marriage at its best can be extraordinary. The best thing ever. But oftentimes we get into seasons where marriage or our relationships are our, our work. Where you're checking uh, boxes, satisfying requirements. To which end I wanted to, to work to close with some practical suggestions for what does it take to enrich. Uh, your marriage, or these deep, loving relationships. And if you're in one of those places right now in your relationship where it doesn't feel like it's easy and it's hard and challenging, I want to I wanna invite you first to, to set aside some time this week or some time today maybe where you can just sit together as partners and try to remember your story. Recount your story together. Don't focus on other things, but focus only on yourself and on your story. Try to get back to that place where you can remember, uh, you know, who you were, where you were, what you were doing, what you looked like when when you first met each other. And and, and try to recount that story all the way with specific details to this place that eventually you said uh, before God and before each other, like, I think I want to do this forever. Sit down with your partner and just try to remember your story. Don't get into where you are right now. Just try to remember together where you've come from in your story that led you to a place of of covenant or of selfless sacrificial love Another thing I want you to consider doing is renewing your vows, and I'm not asking you to set up some sort of big event and big party where you can have like your second wedding together where you renew your vows. I want you to call your pastor so that he can share with you the specific words that you said to each other on the day of your wedding. Or if you have a recording of your wedding or a video of your wedding, I want you to to listen to the words that you shared, the promises that you made, the covenant agreement that you established before God and all of your family. I want you to, to remember those vows, and then what I want you to do is to evaluate how you're doing it at fulfilling those vows. Not how your partner is doing at fulfilling those vows, which is what we're prone to do, you know, throwing stones at the other person. I want you to think about how you're doing at fulfilling those vows. And have an honest conversation as you remember and renew uh, those marriage vows. So reach out to your pastor or revisit that wedding day. Another thing I want you to do is, and this is the most important thing, I want you to make a reservation. Uh, I want you to splurge for the babysitter. I want you to do whatever you can to set aside your schedule, make a reservation at some sort of restaurant where you can just sit together, break bread together in the comfort of each other's company in only each other's company uh, for, for a moment where you can just have like a date and you can just be together without distraction for Wendy and I, that looks like a reservation. Otherwise, it just never happens. And if you're looking for something to say because there are just no words right now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to reach for the future together. The only topic of conversation that should happen at, at that dinner, at that reservation, is that you should be talking about what it is that you can't wait to do together. I want you to reach for the future. And one of the things that you recognize about, about our life together is it should make us better. We should become better because of our marriage together. And so what does that look like uh, for you? What can't you wait to accomplish together so that you might become better What are those things that you want to do? What are those things that you want to tackle? What are those mountains that you want to move? What can you start working toward together? So start every sentence of that conversation at dinner saying, I can't wait until we, and then just start dreaming. The last thing I'd suggest is, and maybe this is perhaps the most important thing, I want you to request a counseling referral. If you're walking through your relationship and it's hard right now, and it feels like it's routine, like you're checking boxes, satisfying requirements, I want you to reach out and request a counseling referral. I want you to talk to somebody. Wendy and I, we think about our marriage, our life together, and and what we consider our counselors to be our our, our, um, preventative maintenance measures. It's like we change the oil in our cars. We try to change the oil, get a tune-up in in our relationship because it's one of the most valuable things that we have that helps us to become better. Find someone to talk to. These are some practical ideas for how it is that you might grow together in this covenantal relationship. And then for some of you here, maybe 42% of you here, if we fit the statistics across this country, you're actually in that place where you're contemplating having an affair. As I was preparing for this weekend, one thing I said I would not do is let this moment go past to say something to those of you who are entertaining this, who are considering making this decision to have an adulterous affair to click on a website, to engage in some sort of emotional connectedness, to to take that physical step. For those of you in this room that are in that place, what I urge you to do is to stop. I want you to pause, count to 10, and consider what will happen when you make that decision, when you click uh, that site when you engage uh, that person virtually, or emotionally, or physically. I want you to think about what that decision's going to do, not for you, but for the generations that will follow you, for your family members and for your friends, for all those people in your life that you don't think about when you're engaging in that behavior. I want you to stop and then for those of you who have walked through the brokenness of this and you you didn't stop or, or you found yourself in a place where things were were falling apart and they have fallen apart one of the things you need to know that I think about every time I think about this specific topic is, is a central story in Scripture it's also in the Gospel of John not the eighth chapter but the fourth chapter in the fourth chapter of John, we follow Jesus, and as Jesus is, is, is literally fleeing murderous threats, he's, he's running for his life, he finds himself in this precarious position where he's trying to get home as fast as he can, and so he goes through enemy territory knowing that that's, uh, you know, going to potentially put him in harm's way, but but he's running through Samaria, his disciples are with him, it's high noon, it's hot, he's hungry, and so he finds himself sitting by a well in the middle of day. Uh, the disciples, they, they leave him there because it's a safe place there. Nobody goes to the well there uh, in the middle of the day, so they go and they find him some food, and he's just sitting there by himself. And while he's there, somebody actually comes to the well, the only person that's welcome at the well at noon, which is somebody who's unwelcome any other time. It's a woman, a Samaritan woman. And, and she confesses to Jesus that she's had not once, not twice, but for five marriages, and she's actively working on her six, which means she's living through this brokenness of adultery, of broken marriages. And, and Jesus knows everything about this woman and has a conversation with her. And knowing everything, he... He loves her. He gives her living water. He gives her something to drink has this face-to-face interaction with her. She she rises up from that interaction after having received the living water, and and she runs back to where she came from, the city that had ostracized her and and that wouldn't speak to her, that relegated her to the well at noon, and and she begins to share with a loud voice everything that she had seen and experienced. She she talks about how she had met the Messiah, the Lord, and and as she shares about this life-changing, life-saving encounter that she had in her worst moment, how the Lord loved her, despite everything that she had done, the whole town hears her testimony and they go and see Jesus. The whole Samaritan village is converted. Their lives are transformed, saved by the grace of Jesus Christ because of that woman's, that broken woman's testimony. Which is if you're in that place of brokenness, if your life has been impacted by extramarital affair or this breach of trust, this trespass, what you need to know is that there's hope. Christ's love is a love that doesn't let us go, it doesn't leave us or forsake us. Nothing can separate us from that love. There is always grace, there is always hope. And what God longs for us to understand when He says, Do not commit adultery or be faithful in marriage is that we are called to love one another the same way. To choose to love our partner every day, not just in the bedroom, every day with everything we have and all that we are requires our whole heart. The way that we are faithful in our marriage is by loving others the way that Christ loves us. And when we do that, we'll find uh, the life that we're looking for. Uh, Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for the gift of this place and this time together. Not knowing what we are walking through, not knowing our experience of love, of relationship, of marriage, but recognizing we all come from different places. Remind that that you meet us all. Remind us that you love us, that you never leave us, that you are Emmanuel, that you are with us, and you urge us to live and to love others the same way that you love us, that you give us this gift of a co laborer and a companion, and you long for us to, to value, to honor, to respect that person, to love that person, to be vulnerable before that person in sickness and in health, in rich times and luxurious times, as well as poor times or distraught times. God, you call us to love always to love like you. So give us hope and strength. Offer us your grace and mercy and inspire us to live differently, to choose to love one another the way that you love us. By your grace, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.